Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7, to kind of set a framework for our conversation today. So just to give you a, your uh, first time with us, uh, as we've been in this series, we've been talking about distinctives of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Like, what does it actually mean to just not wear the label of Christian, but to actually walk, talk, think, and act and react uh, as if Christ is in us? Because that is what the truth is. As we have surrendered to Christ, he, his spirit and his truth now lives within us. And how does that make its way out? Uh, following Christ is not just this inward transformation. It is also this external expression. And so we've been looking at how that, what that means to be loved, forgiven, how that shows up in generosity, how that shows up in how we interact with other people through serving. And today we're coming to the next part of this distinctive uh, aspect of what we are as Christians, and that's the idea of compassion. I love this word, compassion. It's just one of those when you hear it, it just feels soothing. I mean, when I hear it, sometimes I just think like this warm blanket, like when you're cold, like it's just something that the word in it sounds in, in itself just even brings comfort. But many times when we think of compassion, we think of a feeling that we get, like feeling sorry for someone, feeling, you know, bad for someone or wishing their life was better. But the truth is compassion is much more than a feeling. It's an actual action. And I want to see us to see this briefly in this verse right quick out of second Corinthians one, three through seven. Let me read it to you. And it says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we also share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, if we who are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you presently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as we share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And I love the way this verse breaks out this idea of what compassion really is. Compassion, actually, I wanted to define it for us right quick before we get into our discussion on the tangible aspect of how this plays out into a refugee crisis but the first thing is compassion is a feeling. It does start with a feeling. It starts with the way that I feel about something, but it's not just a feeling. It's also an opportunity. It's a, I have empathy, and then I put myself in an opportunity to respond to somebody. So I feel something, but if, I don't, if I'm feeling something, but I don't have an opportunity, I'm not around someone, I'm not engaged with somebody's life enough to actually do something, that's not compassion. But compassion is not just empathy, it's not just opportunity, it's actually response. It's actually doing something. You cannot separate, in compassion, you cannot separate the feeling from the action. That's not what the word is. Empathy is just feeling bad for someone. Responding, you can respond sometimes in anger or just out of guilt. But compassion is when you actually feel a burden for someone, you put your life and help to intersect that need, and then once you intersect in that need, you respond to that need. And that's often a very different idea of what we understand compassion to be. But that is the definition, the biblical concept of compassion. Many of us feel okay, like we even pat ourselves on the back because I feel bad for other people. That's not compassion. Compassion is feeling that, 
but then letting that eventually move us to responding. In just a few minutes, we're going to spend a, a large portion of our teaching time today interviewing two of our New City Church family members who are both experts uh, in an area and actively pursuing uh, the ministry of Christ, the reconciliation of Christ, the, the mercies of Christ in the area of our worldwide refugee crisis. Uh, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves to you here in a minute and tell you what they do. But I'm so excited that they're going to get to bring you both inspiring and informational uh, context about this that helps us move in our understanding of how do we become people of compassion, especially in this one topic. I thought with the debate and the discussion going on around the refugee crisis, it was a perfect time to marry the idea of a biblical concept and a tangible response. And so before we jump into that, I want to show you a brief video that just might help wrap our minds around this idea of compassion in refugees. Happy birthday to you. Ireland clashes with British. Five ammunition against the Serbs get shot. Air strikes on rebel position. Let's go. 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 Let's go.
today happy birthday. Hope you made a wish. that uh, really challenges us out of Deuteronomy to be the hands and feet of God. So Kay and Anna, come on down, uh, and uh, we'll get started here. Watching that video helps me realize I don't know enough, and I don't know uh, really how to fully explain and understand the refugee crisis that is going on worldwide. Uh, But it is happening. It happens every day uh, in our world where people's lives are literally turned upside down. And one day they're you know, in their homes, having a peaceful life, and then the next day their uh, their homes are gone. What they, everything they knew there as their life is totally transformed and changed. And so uh, we are going to have a discussion about that uh, this morning. As we do that, I, I just want to set a couple of thoughts uh, as we begin. And the first is this. This is not a political discussion. I actually hate how uh, the the idea of responding to compassionately to refugees has become politicized. And so this is not a political discussion. Our, game, our role is not to elevate someone or down. Our goal is to actually discuss the issues uh, that are in front of us that we can respond to uh, as individuals So, and to elevate who Christ is and how Christ can respond to us. So Kay and Anna, would you guys just start by introducing yourselves a little bit and tell us what role you guys play uh, when it comes to uh, this? I'll make sure there. There you go, Anna, you can start. I'll make sure. Um, hi, good morning, everybody. Um, is this on? Can you yes. hear me? Yeah. <laughs> um, my name is Anna. Um, I, uh, I work for the United Nations in the department that deals with humanitarian affairs. Uh, my husband, Gary, also has been working for the UN for the past, I think, over 15 years. So um, this topic and this area... It's very um, personal to us. It's 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 been our daily lives for a majority of of our adult lives. So even though I'm speaking in my own capacity, this is something we deal with on on a daily basis, and we're affected by on a daily basis. Okay. Yeah, and I'm Kay Ballor, and currently I'm serving as the vice president for programs at Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, um, and I've been doing. This kind of work here and overseas for decades now, <laughs> so it's really has been my life's um, passion. Um, and as difficult as the issue is, I've always felt grateful uh, to be doing something that that I know um, I truly believe God called me to do. Um, so I'm really glad you guys are here and yeah. glad that we can do this. We're blessed as a church to have two people like this that are expertise in this area to be able to speak to us. And, uh, and bring uh, truth to this. So what we're going to do today, we're going to kind of talk about three issues. The first one is the refugee crisis itself. Uh, what is causing that? And then secondly, we're going to talk about the vetting process. What does that look like? And then third, uh, resettlement. And what is that process? And how do we as uh, Christians, the, the organization K is a part of is a faith-based organization. But there are nine organizations in the U.S. that do resettlement. Seven of those are faith-based organizations. And so the Christian community is and Jewish community are very much involved uh, in these types of things. So let's start with the refugee uh, crisis. So the term refugee, to me, Anna, is often misunderstood. You know, what makes somebody a refugee? Is that 
an illegal alien that comes here. What what is that? What is a refugee? Well, it's for starters, it's a very good question to ask, especially since um, in this whole public debate and in the media about refugees, you hear a number of terms used interchangeably that really are very different things. Like you hear people talking about migrants, immigrants, displaced refugee as if it's the same thing, and they're not. There's very important differences in in practical and in legal terms. So the term refugee really is legally defined in the in the Geneva Convention from the 1950s, and it refers to a person basically who is outside of their national, uh, they're outside of their country and who has fled their country um, and cannot return because they have very well-founded fears of persecution. And that persecution is based on specific things. It's based on um, their race, their political opinion, their um, religion, very much religion, their social group, and um, I think that's, um, that's pretty much. So it's for those reasons, for somebody who cannot return home, for those reasons, that um, they get the title refugee, they can apply for asylum and get refugee, refugee status because this will open up ways for them for international protection. Because you have to understand it this way, if you're persecuted for any of these issues, your country, your government, which is supposed to protect you, can no longer protect you or is not willing to protect you. So therefore, you are outside of your country and you are being... Um, you are being protected in the most basic sense that a country is not allowed to send you back to a place where your life will be a danger, where you most likely get killed. And just to draw the contrast to what a migrant would be, a migrant is somebody who leaves their country voluntarily um, because they're seeking, for example, a better economic opportunity or even sometimes they're fleeing from a natural disaster. These might be real hardships but for the purpose of international law, you're only protected as a refugee if you are persecuted for those reasons, not for poverty. And I have a, um, a practical example I'd like to give because I think this makes this, um, this, makes this very real. Uh, when some refugees were arriving in Europe earlier, um, earlier this year, there were some angry reactions for, some, for one group because they arrived wearing, you know, kind of fancy scarves and, you know, very nice designer clothing in some instances. And people were almost like, well, you, you seem to be doing very well. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, yeah, I'm not a migrant. I was a doctor in my country. I had a great life. And <laughs> but now I've lost everything. I can no longer go home. I've um, had to leave everything behind. So this is all I've left. That I'm so, left. so refugees are literally people fleeing for their life. It's not yes. just, oh, I want a better life somewhere. They are having to flee and leave where they are uh, for their own protection. And I love the way you stated it. It's not that the, the government itself is either unwilling to or can't protect them. And so it's not just people wanting to leave. So when someone determines to be a refugee and they start beginning that process and they're like, I, I have to leave or I'm going to be killed here, I'm going to be persecuted here, what are their options at that point? Can they just mm -hmm. go run across the border to the next country? What, what are their options at that point? Well, first of all, to, uh, this is not um, a straightforward question right. or answer because obviously every crisis, every context is different. But on a very basic level, we have to understand that people who flee from their homes, from what they have, are in an incredibly difficult situation and are 
having to make choices that are really impossible choices. So, for example, there's not just refugees. You have people who flee their homes, and they're still displaced within their own country. Those are called um, IDPs, or internally displaced people. They're technically under legalistic definitions even worse off because they have um, fled their countries, their, uh, their, their homes, their communities. They're stuck in another part of town, still at the mercy of their own government in an IDP camp or um, you know, hiding in a hideout somewhere. Right. So it's, it's never a clear-cut case. These decisions are usually made very suddenly. They're not, they're not, imagine you're hearing tomorrow a militia is planning a raid on your town. They will come and just burn down the place and shoot everybody. What happens in most cases, people will grab a bag and just run. And they will grab whatever means, uh, they will use whatever means of transport they have available. But usually in those instances, you don't have your papers and you don't have a safe way to go to an airport or, or you don't have the financial means or you're politically targeted already. You can't even make it on a flight. And even if you did, you don't have the visas to go wherever you want to go. So you literally walk with whoever's with you, with whatever you were able to grab, walk across a border by foot. And that is where, that's how your journey really begins. And I think that's what so many, like when I was thinking about this, that's what I don't understand. If somebody, you know, it's difficult for me to fathom, I think, because it's, if I, something was happening here in this town, I have family in other places around this country that I could go to and I can drive across the state border without anybody checking paperwork or anything. Mm -hmm. That's not typically the way this plays out here. So we could spend you know, much more time just talking about the refugees, but are there any stats, just how many refugees are we dealing with right now, like in a, this worldwide crisis? What, what is, what, what's the actual numbers that we're looking at? Well, the numbers are really quite devastating. Um, if you look at the big picture and just talk about displacement in general, there's about 65 million people who are displaced from their homes. 65, that's pretty much the population of France wandering around without probably ever having a chance to go home. Wow. That is a magnitude that's enormous. And then of that number, you have about um, just above 20, 21 million people who are legally defined as refugees. The remainders would be you know, IDPs or stateless people. So that brings you to one in every 113 people on this earth is, is currently displaced and is looking for, it's, it has wow. to find a, a place to go. And um, if I could just, because this statistic is really always blowing my mind because these are countries that are um, undergoing enormous um, crises, war zones, um, active hostility, people fleeing for their lives. When you look at um, where those people actually end up, 86% of people who are displaced who are refugees are being hosted in developing countries, 86%. If I read you the list of the top 10 refugee-hosting countries, I'm going to just go through them. They're Turkey, Pakistan, Lebanon, Iran, Ethiopia, Jordan, Kenya, Uganda, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Chad. These are countries who themselves are um, not sizable enough in terms of population, in terms of economic weight. These are the countries that are, bur that are really bearing the burden of the refugee crisis. And they're not 
they're not even given the assistance to cope with this kind of with this kind of magnitude of refugees. If you imagine a country like Lebanon now has almost a quarter of its own population is a refugee. Like of, of every 1,000 Lebanese nationals, there are now almost 200 refugees. This is an enormous, and Lebanon only has, what, 8 million inhabitants? This is an enormous, enormous magnitude, and we all ought to be coming together to resolve that situation. And so you, what we're talking about is that some of the countries with the least amount of resources are taking on the biggest burdens. Correct. And those with the most resources are taking on the least burdens. So let, let's move now to this vetting uh, idea. And so, uh, uh, Kate, maybe you can just give a quick answer to this one thought. How many over the last year, you know, 2016, do you know the number of refugees that came were allowed into the U.S.? Yeah, into the U.S. it was just under uh, 85,000. 85,000 we brought into the U.S. last year. So let's talk about because this has been a big topic of debate, the vetting, extreme vetting, what kind of vetting <laughs> we have, and whichever one of you two feel most comfortable. Says, Once a person, you know, how do they – who declares them the legal refugee? Who, who gives them that legal stamp? Well, there's two processes. Um, the United Nations, definitely, that's, that's the first place most refugees encounter in terms of making their case for refugee status. So the UN, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, will screen somebody, interview them, determine you know, what it is that, that had them flee, are they, are they refugees? And then for the United States, they will either work dire- directly with the United Nations, and the United Nations will make referrals to the United States, or in some cases, refugees can directly apply to the United States. And the vetting starts immediately. Yeah. I mean, certainly for Syria, people actually had their eyeballs scanned and fingered. There's, there's a lot of biometric information that is gathered on the people as they are registering with the U.S. And then in a minute, I can talk about the U.S. extreme vetting that already exists for refugees. So that's kind of the, the legal status comes from some of those organizations. What what other global organizations help to vet and determine status of refugees? Can I, sorry, sure, yeah, I, yeah. I don't think it will answer that, but I wanted to add one thing um, to, uh, to what Kay just yeah. said. Um, while the UN is doing its work in registering um, refugees, they actually look for, um, while they're registering, they are flagging cases for already for potential resettlement because it is only the most vulnerable groups who are in this new host country already who are deemed they're not safe in this host, even in this host country Mm -hmm. because there may be women and girls that have been separated or they may be survivors of torture or of, you know, they have medical problems. Those extremely vulnerable cases are flagged usually through the process that Kay has just described. They're flagged internally for possible resettlement. A refugee, him or herself, cannot ask for resettlement, and they also cannot pick or choose the country um, that they're going to resettle to. And it's the UN that makes that determination based on the very specific vulnerability criteria. So let's talk about this process then, a little bit of vetting. So once somebody gets that legal status of refugee to actually putting their foot in a resettlement place, how, what, what, are, what kind of time frame are we talking about there? Is that weeks, months, years? Yeah. What is I mean, I would say for most refugees, it's years. And and I also want to say that the U.N. makes a determination, but any country that's going to admit a refugee makes their own determination. So, yes, the U.N. says we we are giving this person the status of refugee, but certainly for the United States, there's 
a whole other process that has to occur. So even though the United States is part of the, the sort of international scheme, we have our own definition for refugee. We have our own screening process that every refugee has to, to uh, pass. And so it can take years. And it's important to understand that most refugees aren't resettled. Really, mm. like less than 1.1% of the world's refugees wow. actually eventually have that kind of protection. Um, and most of them would have waited really for, for years. So let's talk, let's switch to the U.S. policy for a minute uh, to try to get as much covered in our time frame as we have. Let's, uh, somebody gets that status, they come to, they get assigned to the U.S. Uh, as a refugee. What is the, you know, once they're granted asylum in the U.S., what's the process that they have to walk through to be cleared, that, that vetting process that we have in place? So, again, the U.N. would have already taken some biometric data and done some vetting, but, but I had worked overseas <laughs> in Thailand, and so for the Burmese refugees that were going to be admitted to the United States, the processing or the vetting starts immediately. So there's a whole process of interviewing the refugee, and then almost immediately they're fingerprinted, um, and then their information is, vet, is, is fed into numerous security databases, and it's a continual check. So this whole process, particularly after 9-11, has just gotten more and more and more complex, and definitely it's not a one-and-done sort of situation. You think, oh, I've passed it. No, you're fingerprinted three times in the process of coming into the United States, and your information is constantly scanned so that if any new information emerges, then, then you know, if necessary, you can, you can get out of the line. And again, that process can take, as you can imagine, there's at least 20 different steps, as I said, those three fingerprint checks, all of the information that's scanned by all of the security agencies, that, that, can, take, that can take as long as two years before you even get to that point where you can say, okay, everything's fine. The idea of somebody getting, just saying, hey, I want to leave my country and jumping on a plane and coming to the U.S. and just walking in through a border, that's, that does not happen, that, that idea. I mean, they, to have that status, and they come in on a tourist visa or right. something like that, but to come in as a refugee status, that they, uh, exactly. year-long, years-long process to yes. do that. So let's talk through then, once they've been vetted and the U.S. government says, okay, we're going to accept them in to resettle, who takes care of that cost? Like, do, do they all of a sudden receive salary from the U.S., like they get a lot of money, they buy, we pay for their apartments, all that kind of stuff. You hear all these different things of what we do for refugees, what actually happens. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the most thrilling part, frankly. So somebody actually has made it through these incredible hoops. And for my organization, we work with local congregations. So all over the country, we're working in 23 states, and this is where church really comes alive. And so our organization works through local, in this case, Lutheran organizations. And, and for um, we receive funding from private donors. We receive, receive funding from the United States, mostly to provide services, the actual cash or whatever that goes to a refugee. I mean, basically, the minute a refugee touches down, we're trying to figure out where they can go to work. Refugees have to go to work almost immediately because we all have to work, right? And so that's something that churches are doing. That's something that community organizations are, are doing. And that's what we look for when we're trying to place a refugee. We look for those 
communities that, that where there is a good job market, we're looking for communities that are communities of welcome. One of the best stories you'll see is the story of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which has good entry-level jobs, it's got good low cost of living, and it's really the home of one of some of the first refugees to America, the Amish, yeah. and they've thrived and refugees have thrived there. And I, I read a stat somewhere that actually refugees coming into community often create jobs. Like they start their own businesses, they start things, new services into an area, like the Amish did with many, you yeah. know, different things that create job opportunities. So yep. does a refugee at that point, are they considered a citizen, an immigrant? Like what is their legal status in yep. the U.S. at that point? So refugees are legal immigrants, so they're admitted um, as legal immigrants within a year. So they come in with refugee status, and then in a year they can um, get the so-called green card, so they get legal permanent status. But the entire time they're here, they're here legally. And then, um, as with most immigrants, after a five-year period, they're eligible to apply for citizenship. So there's a lot. Can I just on that contribution? Yes. So if you woke up this morning and you, you turned on your computer, your computer's functioning because the U.S. admitted a refugee. And if you thought, oh, you know, what was that thing I was looking for? Oh, let me Google it. If you're Googling today, you're Googling because the U.S. admitted a refugee. So when we think of the contributions that immigrants made, you know, refugees or immigrants, it's phenomenal. I mean, really, when we think of our own personal histories, most of us, really almost without exception, our families came from somewhere else. And that's what I love about the U.S. It's a nation of refugees and immigrants. It's not, uh, you know, that's kind of our history. Uh, we've got just a couple minutes left, but uh, I want to give you ch- either of you a chance if there's anything that we haven't covered that you thought, you know, that, let me make sure we communicate this point. So any other thoughts either of you have? Um, I'd like to add something, and if you would give me just about five minutes okay. and bear with me, because this is, to me, um, something very important. As somebody who, is, um, who, who works in this field, the past few weeks in this country and the whole public debates have been an incredibly excruciating and painful time. And it's number one, it's painful because I know the stories of those who flee. And I don't think it's right to talk about refugees without, without also going a little bit graphic on what they're fleeing from. You have Syria, the population before the war, which started some six years ago, was 20 million. You have four to 500,000 people who have died in this war. You have um, just about 8 million people who are internally displaced, I believe. Over 4 million refugees who are fleeing from insurgent attacks, barrel bombs, uh, chemical weapons, besieged cities that the warring parties are deliberately shutting off from humanitarian supplies getting in. So there's no food, no water, no shelter. If you're hiding in a bunker, they now got advanced bombs that come from the ground and bomb you out of your bunker. This is what people fleeing from. You have people in Iraq. The crisis has swept over into Iraq. Fight uh, fleeing because ISIS is after them. Two million refugees, Iraqis, who are worried about getting their heads chopped off because of ISIS waging warfare. You have the Rohingya population, who the Pope just last week, I think, called the most persecuted people on the earth. They are, uh, Kay has mentioned them briefly before, they are a tiny Muslim community 
a minority who lives in northern Myanmar, Burma, and who have over years and years been tortured and systematically killed, their villages burned down. They're now interviewing those refugees in Bangladesh and hearing the most horrifying accounts of women being gang raped by soldiers who are supposed to protect them while their babies are being killed right in front of them. And it's necessary to hear that because this is what makes it real. And I want to add to that that we in this community are answering to a different authority. We are wearing Christians, and as you said in your opening, we are not wearing it as a label. And that does not, unfortunately, give us the freedom to remain silent on this issue. This is not about politics. And quite honestly, just because a politician himself is committing an immoral or evil act doesn't make it politics, and it doesn't mean we can, take, we can stay silent or just kind of agree to disagree on that. And that, to me, is the most important thing coming out of this. We are answering to a higher authority. We are called as Christians to care for those who are vulnerable, who, who, to give those a voice who cannot speak for themselves. And if we choose to not do that, to remain silent, maybe because our favorite party or our favorite politician, or our favorite friend or person in the world says otherwise, we are Christians by label only. Anna, thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, that's at the heart of what we are about. The heart of our church is to be people of action and compassion. The gospel is not something we just hear and agree with. It changes who we are. And I want to close our time here with just going back to that verse out of Corinthians that we looked at. Uh, the verse 7 where it says this, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, we also share in your comfort. What is it that makes our hope unshaken for people that are in these situations? Because I have hope for people in these situations. I have hope that we can come in and help them, that at the very least we can pray for them, we can make other people aware of them. So I just want to give you some biblical concepts that I think help you understand. The first thing we can do is we can pray earnestly. You and I can pray earnestly for God to grow a compassionate spirit in you and in me and pray specifically for these that have been mentioned. Second thing is live proactively by putting yourself into situations to show compassion instead of insulating ourselves from those in need. That's so easy to insulate. Instead, live proactively. Find places where vulnerable people are and go put yourself there. Third is listen intently to the spirit of God and discern when God is prompting you to do something. And when God prompts you to do something, respond. And that's the fourth thing is respond immediately. Don't, don't wait and debate with God. When God prompts your spirit, respond. And you're in there, you're doing, just respond. That's why God's got you there. That's why God's got you up to bat at that point. Not to sit there and watch, but to Respond and then finally engage completely in the need that God has placed in front of you. Don't make people a project. Make them people. Honor them as a person created in God's image. This is not a project that we're adopting. These are people created by God in desperate, desperate need. That's biblical perspective. Kate, what are very specifically with your organization or other organizations, what are five tangible, like we could go out and do these tomorrow? or in a short period of time. And um, before, by just yeah. 30 seconds, um, I think 
if you can imagine, so I've been doing this, as I said, for, for many more years than I'm actually going to let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these, these have been very discouraging days, right? I mean, this is, this is a group of people that the U.S. has welcomed happily for years and years and years. So, so the difficulty in combating the, the public perception and the misinformation, it's just been, it's been difficult and discouraging. But the light that we have seen with the churches, with the faith-based community, responding out of their faith has been so powerful. And I can honestly say that, that if the needle has shifted, if, if the response is, is changing, it's because people's minds and hearts through their faith, you know, has really been part of, of that change. So practically speaking, um, you know, I think without exception, churches and organizations across and, and mosques and, and, and synagogues across the country who are known to be working with, with refugees have seen an uptick in, in volunteers who really want to take in a family, want to sponsor a family, want to just make that welcome as, as warm and as complete as it can be. So, so, you know, connecting with an agency that's resettling refugees, there's always a need. Cash is always good, but definitely just helping that family set up that first apartment is, is really a wonderful one. So offer your support to a refugee family. And then refugees, um, I mean, you can imagine, if you've ever spent time yourself overseas, right, you know, you probably had many, whether you were sort of a world traveler or, or you know, you were doing a little bit better and you plant yourself in another country, and it's still bewildering and bewildering and overwhelming. So here's a refugee. I mean, Anna just, Anna just so, so captured that experience. Now they're in a new community, and they need help for a long period of time, not monetary necessarily, because as I said, they're working, but, but to just work with that long time integration and welcome into, into communities is, is definitely something that volunteers and church volunteers in particular can make a difference on. And then some of the just practical activities, I mean, just taking kids to the zoo, just, you know, reaching out to that family and sharing a meal. I have never been to a refugee home, and I'm going to get out there, <laughs> where, where they didn't offer me something. And, and I know they had next to nothing, but the, the spirit of hospitality that refugees without fail offered to me who has so much. So for us to reciprocate that is, is so powerful. And then, um, and then, as I said, I mean, like all of us, we have to work for a living. Well, so do refugees. And they do that without speaking English. We worked with Somali Bantu women who'd never seen a clock. And, and <laughs> they were working, and, and they're happy to work. But networking, we all know how we get jobs. Those networks are really important. So if you're aware of somebody who needs somebody who will work their heart out, um, because they know they're, they're, they want that American dream. They want to give back. They, they're thankful for being here, and they want to work. So, you know, just having that, that connection to a job or, or, you know, resume building, anything, there's all kinds of employment activities that people can volunteer. And then Teach them a language, right? English, yeah. of course. That, that's a, that is a key one. Um, and then just, you know, listening to, to me and Anna <laughs> talk about our life's work and, and, and you know, being aware of what's true and what's not, and, and being open to hearing people talk about who refugees are and who immigrants are. So just you know, keeping that education going yourselves. And, and ask questions. When all of this hit, 
one of my friends posted, she said, invite me out to coffee, I'll answer your questions. You know, there are answers to the questions, and we're more than happy to answer any questions. So if something just doesn't seem to add up, we'll take you to coffee and try and make it add up. So just that awareness building is critical. So thank you again. Yeah. I want, will you tell them thank you for sharing your heart with us today? We're going to close uh, with a time of prayer. And uh, one of the things I want to challenge, many of you sitting in here are people of influence. And you have influence in different areas, different arenas, different uh, places. And that means you've got to be some big shot somewhere. It just means you have friends, family, other people that you can influence. And I want to challenge you to take what you've heard today, to take what God's challenged and hopefully placed in your heart, a burden to pray and respond to this incredible need in some way. And not just you do that, but influence others to do that uh, as well. So let's close our time together today, praying one for this crisis. And I want to pray specifically for Anna and Kay as well and the work that they are doing and the light that they are bringing to uh, this need. So let's pray together. 